you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be, I'll read verses 1 through 12 if you have uh, your scriptures with you this morning, but I'll really be focusing just on verse 6, which is uh, printed in your bulletin. Again, I'm John Sackett, uh, teaching elder in the PCA and uh, Air Force chaplain stationed at Advanced Air Force Base. We rolled in in July, and we're so delighted that when we checked out Stillwater, we saw there was a PCA church. Uh, it's been uh, years since we've had a PCA church uh, to our Air Force Base in a while, so uh, we were so excited, and uh, even more so when we came to visit and uh, felt the warmth, heard phenomenal preaching, saw prayers craftfully, thoughtfully uh, presented by your leadership, the sacraments rightly administered. What a, what a joy uh, it's been in, in our heart, and then to see our girls taken care of. So when Ryan asked me to preach, I thought that this church has already been a, a great blessing to, to us, and uh, hopefully the Lord might use me uh, as a blessing to you all. So uh, Matthew chapter 5. Pick the Beatitudes. Some of us, uh, some of you might be observing Lent, and uh, if so, if you gave something up, maybe you gave up chocolate or coffee or vegetables or something for Lent, you might be hungering and thirsting for that. That's why I picked the text. I thought it would be a great text. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones's book on the Sermon on the Mount is uh, phenomenally uh, powerful in my own life. But after I gave Ryan the text and I began to re-prepare the sermon, I thought, hunger and thirst for righteousness? I hunger and thirst for a lot of things, but I confess to you that the Lord revealed to me this past week that for righteousness is not something that I spend a lot of time hungering and thirsting for. So it's uh, with the great meekness and humility that I preach to myself in front of you all, and uh, hopefully the Lord will use this word in your life as well. I'm going to read again Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he, this is Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. 
pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. I had a hunger. I was eight years old, and I wanted trains. When Christmas was coming, I did all the work that a good child needs to do to try to secure that kind of a gift at Christmas. I gave all the hints. I volunteered for chores. And then Christmas morning dawned, and I raced to explore the base of the tree, and I looked for that train-shaped package, and it wasn't there. Well, we went through the morning ritual of opening all the gifts, and I hope I got many good gifts that morning, and I hope I seemed excited to get those gifts. I don't remember any of that. I just remember that I didn't get trains, and there was one box left, and it was a cube box, the kind you pack books in, not a train-shaped box. Trust me, I knew I had checked the stores in the whole Baltimore area. And I opened that box, and it was trains. My father had taken it apart and repacked it for me, and for a moment I was thoroughly, completely, and fully satisfied. For about a minute. It was probably technically much longer than that, but you know how it goes. The novelty or the paint wears off. The batteries die, the model comes up obsolete, the system needs upgrading, the relationship begins to grow cold, the house loses its charm, the job its challenge, whatever it is, it begins to wear around the edges and suddenly we realize that we are unfulfilled, we are restless. We are looking to satisfy that hunger. And I know in a group this size, there are many here with profound hungers. You are thirsty. You are hungry for something. And I have good news this morning. Well, good news for some, and rather bad news for others. It's the simple truth of our text this morning, that only if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, will we be satisfied? Let me say that another way. Because only God can truly satisfy our needs, we must hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we look at this and unpack this beatitude this morning, I hope that you'll see this truth as well. I believe that this is a pivotal uh, beatitude. It's a hinge upon which all the ones coming before it build up to it and all those that flow or follow flow from it. Uh, the beatitudes after this one are the natural consequences, the outworking of righteousness at work in one's life. Let me briefly build up to verse 6. Notice, if you will, in the beatitudes, Jesus starts them off with the same phrase, blessed or blessed. Some would say happy, genuinely happy. Or others would translate this, on the right road. Blessed are you. Verse 3 starts, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus here calls us to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. That's what poor in spirit means. To see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt. That is, we are aware that we are completely unable to pay the penalty of the debt of our sin. Now, if you have taken that honest look in your life, that leads you to verse 4. That leads you to begin to mourn over the sin in your life. And if you've mourned over the sin in your life, that turns you and prepares in you a humble and a meek attitude or a perspective, one that has truly recognized your need. You're humble enough to ask for help, humble enough to ask for a Savior. And not just ask, but truly desire to be saved from our sin and from its corruption. We fully understand our need. We begin to long to be cleansed. We long to be freed from our former bondage to sin. And we are finding our true hunger. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's no question that we as a people hunger and thirst. Uh, A while back in my daily devotions, I was reading through Ecclesiastes, and I noticed how central eating and drinking were. That's not a great discovery, but nonetheless, I was struck by this phrase, eat and drink and find pleasure in your toil. That phrase was used many times exactly in Ecclesiastes, and a variation of it was used many more times. So I was curious, and I did a quick search. Over 460 times the scriptures talk about eating. Over 310 times the scriptures talk about drinking. The church potluck is nothing new. Eating and drinking is a natural part of our life, and so it's quite natural that Christ uses that to call us to hunger and thirst. It's a vital drive we all possess, and therefore Christ tells us that we are blessed when we hunger and thirst for the right thing. Following Jones's argument here, I want to first draw attention to what this passage doesn't mean. First, you'll notice that we are not called to hunger and thirst for happiness. Happiness may be listed as one of the inalienable rights in our Declaration of Independence, but woe to the man who tries to pursue happiness as a goal at least by today's standards. If you hunger and thirst for happiness, you will find it an elusive goal. What does it mean even to be happy? It's a question that I often ask folks when they come in to see me as a chaplain for counseling. I ask them what their goal in life is. What would success look like? What does it mean to be happy? And very often their answer sounds a lot like they would like a life free That's what happiness is, right? No pain. Often we're like a patient who is in pain and wants to rid ourselves of that pain. And it's understandable. Who wants pain? We can only see, we can only feel our pain. And yet the doctor, he's a good doctor, knows that pain is very often a gift from God to point out 
disease, to expose an ailment or sickness or some other trouble. And so while he may be interested in relieving that pain, his principal concern is to locate the disease and to cure that. The good doctor knows the real problem is not the pain, but the disease. And we'll speak about that disease in just a moment. We're not called to hunger and thirst for a life of happiness. We're not called to hunger and thirst for a life free from pain. We're not even called to hunger and thirst for a life filled with comfort or ease. You can see that in verses 10 through 12. We're blessed when we're persecuted. Did I sign up for that? That's what Christ tells us. And here, even in the Beatitudes, where each verse begins with the phrase, blessed are those who. We see that we're not even called to hunger and thirst for blessedness. There is no call from the scripture for you to have your best life now. You won't see that. If you read your Bibles, you'll notice and be quick to notice the dangers and the folly of hungering and thirsting for a happy and a successful life. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. Soft soap. Don't you hate that? When you pick up a bar of soap and it's squishy. That's the warning he's giving us. Sometimes as Christians we confuse the search for truth with a search for a spiritual high. We may not even be aware that that's our tendency is to hunger and thirst for a spiritual experience, what uh, we used to call a mountaintop experience. But this text is not calling us to hunger and thirst for that, for that spiritual rush that it can occur from that new and exciting church or from a great conference or some other point in time experience. And there's nothing wrong with a good conference. I know the men just returned from one and I look forward every year to the chaplain's conference where the PCA brings in phenomenal speakers. But imagine the paltry spiritual life one would have if they only lived for the next spiritual high. We are called to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for only then we'll be satisfied. Well, what then is this righteousness? A righteousness is a text or a term used in the scripture that often expresses our justification. That is our being declared righteous, declared right, declared acceptable by God, by virtue of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me develop this for just a moment. Now, Paul explains this point in Romans, particularly in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He writes this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Quoting Psalm, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
this righteousness is immediately given and declared to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. In this sense, we are already made perfect. That's what righteousness can mean. But you may also notice that Paul uses the same term later in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and 32. Paul says this, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, this is a clear, powerful doctrinal passage which shows that we are saved as a gift by faith and not as a result of our works. But here I want to show that Paul also is making a a distinction here that's helpful for our discussion. He uses the word righteousness in two ways. In the first case, meaning justification. That is, we've been declared perfect because Christ is perfect. And secondly, he's using it in the case that theologians call sanctification, in which we are being rid of, being separated from sin. In that sense, we are being made perfect. This is the righteousness that Christ is speaking of when he's calling us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's telling us to hunger and thirst for his righteousness. He's telling us to hunger and thirst for himself. Our call here is that we're to hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. We're to hunger and thirst for God himself. And if we do then we'll begin to hunger and thirst to be rid of sin. We'll, to take it a little further, we'll hunger and thirst to be rid of the power of sin. To take it even further, we'll hunger and thirst to have no more desire to sin. You're going to want to put this away. Because sin separates us from God for the Christian, not in a permanent sense, but in a relational sense. Our sin clouds the brilliance of a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We see it when we sin against our fellow brothers and sisters, how it clouds that relationship. Our sin clouds our relationship with our Father that same way. He loves us. And he has already provided a way of escape and restoration through his son, Christ Jesus. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you're going to want to put away sin. So I have a few practical applications on how you might do that, but I only want to touch on these very briefly because if you leave here thinking you've captured a list, in which you can now work to attain righteousness, work, or how you can work to improve your righteousness, then I've utterly failed. And yet if you walk out of here saying, so what, I've also failed. 
So I do have a few practical applications, but before I give them, I want to make sure that the driving attitude in your life surrounding these applications flows straight from our text. That is, that you are consumed by a hunger and thirst for righteousness. A hunger and thirst to be right with God. And to do that, it may be helpful that we take a look, just a moment, at what are the things we hunger and thirst for. Now, some people hunger and thirst for power, some for position, some for attention, some for love. Now, you've seen this. Perhaps you've lived it in your life where there was some desire that consumed you and began to affect the way you thought, the way you acted, until you felt that you've accomplished that goal, achieved that thing. You were so hungry and thirsty, it changed the way you lived your life. You can see that in the classic westerns. There's almost always a scene where the cowboy is literally crawling through the desert. He's becoming consumed, even maddened by the fact that he is starving and thirsty, becoming more and more desperate as he is overwhelmed by that hunger and thirst. Have you ever felt that hunger? Have you ever felt driven by that kind of thirst? If you haven't, then perhaps that's why you so often feel unsatisfied. Jesus tells us plainly that unless we hunger and thirst for righteousness, unless we are driven, fueled, compelled, desperate, starving for his presence, for his love, for his forgiveness, for his righteousness, we will never be satisfied. Preacher Jay and Darby makes this point brilliantly when he notes this. When the prodigal son was merely hungry, he went to feed on the husks. When he was starving, he turned to his father. This has been my prayer for myself and for you in preparing the sermon, that God would cultivate a heart and a hearty appetite for his righteousness that we would want to strive for his righteousness, that we would want to drink of the living waters, that we would want to hunger for the bread of life. To put it this way, quoting Paul in Philippians 2.2, that we would want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's made it very clear elsewhere that you never work for your salvation. Why don't we want to work it out. I'm thinking of a story in which Luther met with some of his students, and he was sharing the gospel with them how in Christ we are fully and freely forgiven. Everything we've done, everything we're doing, everything we will do has been forgiven in Christ. That is great news. And one of the students got it, and he said, so that means I can do whatever I want? And God will forgive me? Yes, says Luther. Wait, wait a minute. Anything I want I can do and God will forgive me? Yes, says Luther. Anything? Yes. Now, what do you want? You see, when you ask that question of yourself, you begin to wonder, where, 
is our heart. Have we really understood the sin in our life? Do we really know how much we deserve the penalty of that sin? Have we tasted fully Christ's full and free forgiveness? If we have, it begins to change what we want. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. So here's a couple applications. They flow from Psalm 1. First, some negative applications. David the psalmist writes, Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. When you look at that, we realize that we would be wise to put away any practices in our lives that are directly opposed to righteousness. We may be allowing ourselves to read things we have no business reading, watch things we ought not to watch. There may even be relationships that we're involved in that do nothing to help and very clearly does things to hinder our growth in grace and in righteousness. David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, asked the Lord to search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way or wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's all I'm asking us to do here is to inventory the desires of our life before the Lord. What do you hunger and thirst for? Are you a news junkie? Do you follow the Hollywood scene? Are you wrapped up in the political process as if salvation comes from there? Are you some team's biggest fan? Here we would be wise to take a hard look at ordinary and in some cases good in themselves things which in our life can distract us from God himself. They could be things as innocent as social networking or the news or gaming or whatever. What are the desires in your life? What do you want to do? Well, there's positive applications from Psalm 1 as well. It continues. Instead, his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here we see intentionality, purposely putting ourselves in the way of the means of grace. Daily time in the word. Why would you not want that? Regular time in prayer, conversing with the one that you know loves you. And you've said you love yourself. Praying with your family if you've got one. Attendance and worship, you've all done that. Where you hear the word faithfully preached as it is here each week. The songs faithfully sung to God. The sacraments rightly observed where we can taste, see, feel, touch the gospel and the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the pivotal beatitude where Christ has called, even commanded, invited us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we can't attain that goal unless it's given to us. 
You can't make yourselves more holy. This is a work of the Father by His Spirit. As He convicts you of, his, of sin, encourages you and strengthens you, and all the while transforms you into the image of His Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet we are commanded to guard our hearts. and We are called to be thoughtful. We are called to be discerning to what we read, what we think, how we speak. And God is pleased to feed our love for righteousness and for godly living as we feed our love for God, to grow in that love. And similarly, as God identifies the loves in our lives which run counter to righteousness, we must work to starve those loves. And as we do, we'll find that we become more and more satisfied in Christ, more and more satisfied with God's working and his will working out in our life, more and more satisfied with God's love. And then the blessings of these beatitudes that follow will begin to flow. The blessing of mercy and of purity and of peacemaking. And yes, even the blessing of persecution will be ours. Well, the temptations of life are many. The temptations that the scriptures call the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, they're going to work, Satan's going to work those in your life to capture your attention and to cultivate a hunger and a thirst that would pull you away from the righteousness of Christ. But on the other hand, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all things, yet without sin. And he has already provided your way of escape in himself. And so he reminds us that we are blessed when we remember our spiritual bankruptcy because it helps us to mourn over the sin in our life. And that helps us to see our need which helps to cultivate a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness that God is working in our life by the power of his Spirit and for the glory of his Son. That is why you are blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. For only then will you be satisfied. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this word's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, you know each of us and our needs, and I pray that you would be pleased to work your word into our life, to work the songs sung into our life, to remind us of our baptism, to rejoice that you've sealed us, that we are yours. Father, we give you all thanks and praise. In Jesus' name.